Um, at our house, when we're watching movies, we love having the audio fill the room. I like putting it right up to 100, all the way. 100% of the <laughs> available sound, that's what I want. So when we're watching movies, uh, it's, an, it's an experience. You are just absolutely swallowed up by the audio. And when the movie's over, and the credits are rolling, and the final score is playing, um, you know, we'll, fade, the, we'll fade, the, fade it down, and then we'll maybe talk about what we saw, and we'll shut the TV off. But every once in a while, we forget to turn the, the volume down. Not very often, but every once in a while we forget. And when we, one of us turns that TV back on, there is this, uh, there's this explosion of audio that just hits the room and it is absolutely impossible to ignore and it arrests the attention of everybody in the house. Our text for this morning is from John chapter one, this very famous and familiar text about God incarnate, God becoming human flesh. And it is, uh, and the, the writer, John, wrote this in such a way that it is supposed to arrest our attention when you get to his prologue and you get to chapter one, like volume that's at 100, it's impossible to ignore. It arrests everybody everybody's attention and it demands a response. John chapter one, the first 18 verses. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. John himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him, crying out, saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we've all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in close relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is God's word. Now John is describing Jesus coming into the world as light driving out darkness. It's aggressive language. It's cosmic conflict. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Them's fighting words. What this is is this is God waging war. He's not waging war on humanity. He loves humanity. He's waging war on Satan, the Satan, the accuser, because he loves humanity. He loves us. He's, going, he's come to 
redeem and restore us. There is a uh, playwright, an English playwright, and she is a, also um, an excellent theologian. Her name is Dorothy Sayers. And concerning the doctrine of the incarnation, here's what Dorothy wrote. She said, we may call that doctrine exhilarating or we may call it devastating. We may call it revelation or we may call it rubbish. But if we call it dull, then words have no meaning at all. What in heaven's name can we call exciting? Well said. Because the incarnation of God, God wrapping himself in the clay of his own creation, this is the fulfillment of everything that we want. When you consider the deepest longings of the human heart, a life of peace, a world where there is unity and joy, pleasure, and the, the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the promise of the gospel, it is the fulfillment of everything that we long deep, most deeply in our souls, that in Jesus Christ uh, and in his resurrection comes um, the joy without horizon and the, the pleasure and the restoration of all things, the world that we wish that we, we lived in that was in a glorious unity that continually escapes us. This is what comes and this is what is brought. Now, the people of God, uh, since the beginning of time, have always grappled with the darkness. They've always suffered under darkness. We are not the first generation. It's not unique to us to suffer under many forms of darkness. This has been this way for the people of God for millennia. Uh, we experience darkness in the dissolving of relationships. We experience darkness in the sorrow of battling with disease and with death, or in the carnage that's found in the wake of greed or in the endless fight that we're in against injustice and oppression or discrimination. Uh, we see darkness in the predictable ruin of communities that are being ruled by those intoxicated by the love of ruling. And so Jesus Christ enters into all this darkness. He experiences the darkness. Our God condescends and, and, and in solidarity suffers darkness. Our God loves those who were oppressed by the darkness Jesus was speaking truth to power, those who were in bed with darkness. And when Jesus Christ died and suffered on the Roman cross and, he died, and in the crucifixion, the sky at midday turns to darkness. Then on the third day, the resurrection, as all history records that the tomb was empty, when Jesus Christ rose and hundreds of eyewitnesses saw the resurrected Christ, what that all means is the end of darkness. What it means is the end of the story of your life and mine is not death, but life. It's not darkness, it's light. For the Christian, for the Christian worldview, this is our understanding of teleology. This is where life is headed. This is where history is going. Uh, all the earth is not endlessly moving towards decay. It is in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, actually moving towards restoration in God. Um, this beautiful world um, that's, you know, subject to, to sin and darkness, uh, is groaning. The world, the entire world, global community has been groaning for nine months. Going on 10 months, we've been groaning. You know, uh, Saturday Night Live, uh, the last one of the season last year, uh, last week, um, Kristen Wiig, comedian, she says, guys, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. The vaccine is here and there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And the light has shown us how gross the tunnel is. And she's a philosopher because she's right. The whole world has been groaning because we see how gross the tunnel is. There's no denying, unless you stick your head in the sand, how gross, how gross the tunnel is. And so it is in, in this place that the, our world is groaning. And church, 
my friends, may we, united to Jesus Christ, not simply echo the groaning. May we, united to the one who has defeated darkness and death, who are indwelled by his spirit, may we not just be echoes of the groaning and the complaining of those who are clamoring with no hope, but may we, united to Jesus Christ, be voices of hope. May we be ministers to those who are groaning and clamoring for hope. May God give us boldness, boldness to give a defense as we uh, look at uh, 2021 just around the corner, as we head into this new year. May God give us boldness to give a defense for the hope that we enjoy right in the midst of the brokenness, right in the midst of the groaning. Uh, may he lift our hearts and our, and our spirits by his indwelling power to be able to do that. Because this whole Christmas season, the whole point of the church throughout church history, narrowing the gaze on the incarnation of Jesus Christ, on the word became flesh, is so that we can be pulled out of our groaning. Every generation in its own right uh, had reasons for its groaning. And John chapter 1 pulls us out of this as we consider that the immortal becomes mortal. And as we sort of marinate in what that actually means, that the eternal word is going to be heard through a human voice, that the God whose voice thundered on Mount Sinai cried in a manger. What does this mean, this God with us? What does this mean, this world word became flesh? You know, between Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, there was 400 years where God did not speak. And when the Christ child cried in the manger, that was the end of 400 years of silent nights. What does that mean? What is the implications of God with us? Not this God who's just merely transcendent from a distance, but is both transcendent and eminent, empowering his church empowering us in these days. When you look at verse one, this whole text begins with this intentional sort of memory jogging phrase. It says, in the beginning. That's in, intentional to get us to think about the book of Genesis. Because the process of creation, it actually foreshadows our process of recreation. Think about creation. In the beginning, you've got this swirling stormy waters where there is no life, there is only death. And, you know, our soul is like those restless, stormy waters. And apart from God, there is no life, there's only death. Then in creation, the Holy Spirit hovers over the dead waters. And in recreation, the Holy Spirit hovers over the dead waters of our soul. And in creation, as God speaks and there is life, in recreation, God speaks and as the gospel is preached and we hear the gospel with our ears and the Holy Spirit hovers over our dead hearts, there is life. That just as God moved over the face of the waters at creation, he moves over our dead hearts in recreation and we receive the gospel and we come to this place of life and life comes from death. In the beginning, this same God of, of, of uh, this creator God is the redeeming God. And so John calls this word uh, the logos. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God. He says that the, the word was God, the logos was God. Why would he use that word, and what does he mean, and what is the significance of this? What's interesting about this is, God, is John is using a word that everybody is really familiar with. The Greek word is logos. It's where we get our English word logic from. And the Greek culture uh, was obsessed with logic. The Greco-Roman world was obsessed with sort of reason and meaning and the logic behind 
you know, the universe. And so they, they, they craved to understand it. They were intellectuals. And so John is like, the answer for what you're looking for is actually found in Jesus. And he does this by using this word logos. There was a philosopher named Heraclitus. 500 years before John said that the logos um, was the orderly reason and the logic for the universe. So it was sort of in the ethos of the culture. And then, and then while John was writing this, there was a Jewish philosopher named Philo. And Philo said, would, had a lot of writings, you can read them, um, manuscripts where Philo's writing said that, okay, well, the logic or the logos was like this tool that God used. So the whole culture had this idea that, okay, well, there's this logic that exists. It's this reason behind the universe. There's a tool that God uses. And John comes along and John uses the word logos evangelistically. John says that the order, the logic, the reason behind the universe is not a principle. It's a person. The meaning that you're looking for, the logic that you're looking for, the understanding that you're looking for is not merely found in a principle. It's a person. It's in Jesus Christ. It's in the one who came, who lived and died on a Roman cross and three days later was seen by hundreds of witnesses. This is the logic. You know, uh, the late Stephen Hawking in 1988, he wrote a book called uh, Brief History of Time. And in it, he says, you know, even if we were able to sort of understand the universe through a series of equations, a question would still remain. And the question is, what is breathing life into the equations? And so what John is getting at, what is the answer that the Greeks were looking for, is the answer that Stephen Hawking was looking for to say, it's not merely a principle, but it's a person that's breathing the life into the universe. And so while God's written word instructs us, God's eternal word, Jesus, created us. He recreates us. His spirit indwells us. He reforms us. That's why the whole Christian life, the Christian faith, can't just be reduced to being about what you're doing. That's why for those of you who are maybe exploring Christian faith this morning, been joining the Redeemer live streams and you're considering all these things you're hearing, Christian faith is not merely about doing a list of things that you should be doing. You can't reduce it to that. Christian faith is beyond just the doing and it's about who you're becoming. It's about united to Jesus who you are becoming. All of the doing, is it's a byproduct. It's flowing out of the newness of who you are becoming because it's not just behavior. Earlier, Susan was saying to the kids, uh, talking about the, the big word at Christmas that they focus on is behold, behold, behold. That's the message of the Christian life. The angels weren't showing up on all those accounts and saying, behave, behave, behave. The message of the gospel is behold. All the, all the behaving flows out of that. That's why all of the texts, you know, we spent all summer and all of the fall leading up to Christmas, we spent about 20 weeks studying wisdom literature. And over and over in the liter wisdom literature, what do you find? You find that if you're going to be a person of wisdom, you've got to back up the train and be a person of worship. Because the wisdom flows from the worship. Why? Because the way that I think, the things that I'm going to do, the life that I'm going to lead, it's all flowing out of the logos. It's all flowing out of the logic. The logic with which, how would I live my life? And what is governing my ethics? And what do I think? I don't look at the culture and say, please hand me my ethics and my understanding. I look at the God, the person who is behind the universe. And I say, if Jesus Christ is Lord, if God, he is God incarnate and he wrapped himself in the clay of his creation and he rose on the third day, he's my king. I behold him. I worship him. And therefore he then now governs my life. And so John, what John does, if you read this uh, 
this uh, passage again, you're going to notice he doesn't use any um, Greek nouns for knowledge. He, well, you're reading it in English, of course, but he doesn't, he doesn't talk about knowledge. He's actually talking about knowing. So he's using words like recognize and received and believed. These are all, these are all words about knowing. And he's doing this on purpose because he's reminding us that Christian faith, knowing Jesus, it's more than just the intellect. It's more than just the captivation of the mind. It is the captivation of the mind and the heart, and it works its way out of our hands. It is this total renewal that comes in Jesus Christ. Verse 13, he says that we've been given the right to be called children of God. And we've been given this right, not on the basis of the family that you're born into, not on the basis of what your mommy and daddy were up to or who they were, not on the basis of any of these things, not on the basis, it, it, it goes on, it's very provocative. He says, you're not, you're not even able to call yourself a child of God by the power of your own will. You're only able to call yourself a child of God because of the power of God's grace. Because of his great grace that at some point we've got in this little church of ours, a hundred different stories of how God came and reached all of us. And by his great grace, we responded with our will and we call ourselves children of God. And it's incredibly, incredibly humbling. It's humbling because all of us were a part of this darkness. We need to be rescued out of this darkness. God comes into the darkness uh, with his light and he opens our eyes so that we see our need for him. You see, Jesus is not like this nervous newcomer in gym class crossing his fingers hoping that we pick him. He moved towards us. The light shone into the darkness to come to save us. He chooses us. And it's because he's chosen us that we choose him. We love him because he first loved us. And this is what the Gospel of John uh, presents. And it's very humbling. It produces this, this humility and this confidence that we have so we can be witnesses of this light. So that we can look at 2021 around the corner, this year that we're facing, and, and recognize that just as John was a witness of the light, you and I in the city of Kitchener-Waterloo, we are called to be witnesses of this light. We can do this with confidence and humility. We can be very confident witnesses because we know salvation is not based on our eloquence, It's not based on our goodness. It's based on God's grace. He saves by grace. So we can be very confident in our witness. And we can also be very humble in our witness because we know, of course, that it's God who shone his light into our darkness and all of us uh, are here on this call because of that. And so he's going to actually shine through the cracks of his deeply flawed people in this city. That's how he chooses to work. It's what he chooses to do and he will do it. So we can be humble and confident as we as we minister this next year. Verse 14 says that he dwelled among us, this dwelling which we've been talking about at Christmas time, what God has wanted from the beginning is what he's doing now and it's what he'll do forever. In the garden, he dwelled with his children. Adam and Eve destroyed absolutely everything and yet because of his great love, he wanted to dwell with them and so he moved in grace toward them. All through the Old Testament, God condescends into a box behind a dusty curtain in the desert as he's surrounded by his 12 tribes, these 12 dysfunctional families. And then you see in the New Testament, God condescends again as he comes in human flesh in Jesus. And it's not 12 tribes, it's 12 disciples as he's surrounded again by his dysfunctional, deeply flawed children who he loves. 
And in a small way, we can understand that. I understand that my children aren't perfect. I understand that my children are deeply flawed, but I love them. And if anybody else talks about how deeply flawed they are, I'll flip tables over. Because I'm like, no, those are my kids. And our Heavenly Father is that way with us. He knows our, our frailty. He knows we're deeply flawed. And yet he loves us supremely. And so uh, this is very encouraging. This, this prologue of John, it concludes with this powerful statement by saying uh, that nobody has seen God fully until now. You know, all through the Old Testament, the presence of God was astounding, but it was also overwhelming. And in the New Testament, the presence of God is astounding, and yet now it's comforting. Why is that? Well, it's not because the God of the New Testament saves us from the ogre in the Old Testament. That's a very poor understanding of the Bible. It's that God's presence in the Old Testament was overwhelming in the same sense that you can't stare at the sun with your naked eye because that would be overwhelming. You need a filter. So God was astounding and glorious in the Old Testament But he comes in Jesus Christ, and in the same way that our eyes need a filter to see the Son, Jesus Christ is the filter that perfectly interprets the Father. And so we we are able to look now at the goodness of God through Jesus, who perfectly interprets him. If you want to know what God is like, then we look at Jesus. And if you want to know how God feels about you, then you look at the cross. In verse 17, it says that the law came through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And I'm going to close with this. What does that mean? And why is that good news for us today? Well, Moses was born while God's people suffered under Pharaoh. Jesus was born while God's people suffered under Herod. Pharaoh killed scores of male children in the hopes that he would destroy Moses. And Herod killed scores of male children in the hopes that he would destroy Jesus. Moses' mission was to deliver God's children from slavery in Egypt. Jesus' mission was to deliver God's children from the slavery of sin and death. Moses instructed God's children to sacrifice a Passover lamb for their sin. Jesus Christ was the final sacrifice and the one true Passover lamb who has taken away our sin. Moses lifted up a bronze serpent and all who looked on it were healed of their sickness. Jesus was lifted up on a cross, and all who look on him are healed of sin and death. Moses was the first mediator. Jesus is the final mediator. Moses gave the Ten Commandments to God's children. Jesus has kept the Ten Commandments for God's children, so that the Ten Commandments can now guide God's children, and the Ten Commandments are are not the saving means for God's children. Moses died on a hillside, outside the promised land because he could not keep God's law. Jesus died on a hill outside Jerusalem because we can't keep God's law. Moses could not look on the face of God. Jesus shows us the face of God. The law came through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, the word who became flesh, who dwelt among us, the light who shone into the darkness and the darkness could not overcome him. So may we be bold, humble witnesses of this hope in this coming year. Let's pray.